Well, there are a great deal of opportunities to serve here at Willingdon Church, and uh, whatever gifting God has given you, uh, we probably have a place for you to get involved. So we just do encourage you, listen to what God says to you, and then get involved. Well, today we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Daniel, and so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 3. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible, you can find this on page 739 of the Bible that should be somewhere in the chair near you. Daniel 3 is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It took place about 2,600 years ago. So it's a, it's a story from a long time ago. But the fact of the matter is, it is an incredibly contemporary story with very real implications for how it is that we ought to live our lives. And that is because this is a story all about how to live for Christ in the middle of a pluralistic society. Now, a pluralistic society is a society in which there are all kinds of different peoples from different lands, different backgrounds, with different worldviews and different religions, all living together in the same place. And that's what Babylon was. Babylon was a very pluralistic society. You see, we sometimes think Babylon was just filled with Babylonians. But in fact, what King Nebuchadnezzar did when he came to Jerusalem and conquered it was that he took the finest, the best, the smartest from that city and brought them back to Babylon. But he didn't just do that when he conquered the the city of Jerusalem. Every nation that he conquered, he did this very thing. And so this city was filled with all these very smart, brilliant, capable people who each brought their own beliefs, their own values, their own ideas and their own religions with them to that city. In fact, archaeologists tell us that that city had over 1,000 temples in it. So you can imagine that when Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego first came into that city, they would have come into a city that was incredibly diverse. There would have been all these competing ideas about how life should be lived and what it was all about put forward by all kinds of brilliant and gifted people. Babylon Babylon was a very pluralistic society, and they found themselves right in the middle of it. And of course, that describes our city, doesn't it? A beautiful city, but a very pluralistic city with all kinds of people gathered from around the world with all kinds of understandings about what life is about. Like all pluralistic societies, the Babylonians put pressure on all these people from all these different places to leave behind the values and the, and the beliefs that they had and to adopt the beliefs of Babylon, to put those first and foremost in their culture. And the, variety, and, and the Babylonians did this in a variety of ways, some of them very subtle, some of them not so subtle. One of the ways that they did it, we see in the opening verses of the book of Daniel. If you just turn back to the beginning of this book, Daniel chapter 1, Verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. This is how the book starts. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. See what happened there? He came and he defeated them militarily. But then, 
Then Nebuchadnezzar went into the temple and he gathered these vessels, these instruments that were used to worship God. They were instruments of the faith of the people of Israel and he put them on a cart and he bumped them all the way back to Babylon. This was a very deliberate act on the part of the Babylonians. Their goal was to minimize the faith of the people of Israel, particularly the faith of those who came with them into Babylon. Because when they got to the city of Babylon, they took all of these vessels off of that cart and they went down into the basement of one of their temples and they put them on a shelf where the dust would collect on them. Where they would be like a museum where people could come by and say, oh, isn't that interesting? And the subtle message that was being sent to the exiles who came was your faith. The one you had back in Jerusalem Maybe that was good for when you were there, but it's kind of outdated now. It's kind of quaint. Kind of of belongs in a museum now, doesn't it? Because look, you're in Babylon now. I mean, look at the, the learning that we have and the science and the brilliance of this. And the unspoken message was, if your God was really true, then why are you in Babylon? And why are the vessels of your God in the museum? Why isn't the other way around? You see, in every pluralistic society, there is this kind of uh, action and activity. And you have to understand that this is, before we judge too much, this is understandable. They had people from all over the place, and this is what they did. Take your beliefs and put them on the shelf. And they did that because nobody had introduced to them the true God. That was part of the reason why Daniel and friends were there. But the message that we get, sometimes, subtly, is that, you know, that that faith of yours, it was good for your parents, probably good for your grandparents, but not now. Now we know so much better. And their first goal in a pluralistic society is to minimize the faith of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the first way. But then there's another way, and that was that they immediately enrolled these young men in their educational system. The first thing that they did when they arrived was to enroll them in the University of Babylon. And of course, the goal of that education was to shape and to form their thinking so that they would take on Babylonian values and Babylonian way of thinking. And of course, as we saw when Pastor Ray took us through that passage, that Daniel and his friends were aware of this and they did not take on that way of thinking. Instead, they studied hard and they worked hard and they learned all that they could and they excelled, didn't they? I mean, they became the top of their class. But they never let the teachings of Babylon override their deep faith in God. And when the university wanted them to do something that they knew full well wouldn't bring pleasure to God, they simply said no. Trusted God in it. And again, in our pluralistic society, the education system has the same purpose to bring and instill into our children the cultures or the values of this culture. And that's not all bad. There are some beautiful values that we have in this pluralistic culture. And and those are good things. But there are other values that this culture has that run directly against who God is and what he calls us to live. And so that means that we, as as parents who are raising our children in this pluralistic society, this beautiful city that God has put us in, that we need to make sure that at home we are faithful to teach our children who God is 
that we are living our life before them in a way that they see that we love God. It means that we need to insist that they participate in the community life of the church, that this is important for them. And you know, when we raise our children that way, then we can send our sons and daughters to the finest universities anywhere in the world. And not only will they be able to stand, but they will be able to excel along the way. Of course, when they get there, they're going to face pressures. That's just a given. But if they know God and if they trust him, then those experiences, the the testing that they experience there, that will actually strengthen their faith for some of the challenges that will come further down the road. Certainly the parents of Daniel and his buddies did a fine job of instilling in their children a deep, a deep love for Jesus. And not only did they uh, excel when they went to the university, but they ended up landing great jobs in the administration of the Babylonian government. That is where we are when we come to this story in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel and his friends are building a life in Babylon. They have jobs in the Babylonian government. Uh, They are uh, building successful careers. And it's likely that by now they're married. And they have a family and some kids and a home. It's important not to miss that. You see, sometimes when we face the pressure of a pluralistic society, sometimes the temptation for those of us who follow God is to actually retreat from that society, to, 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 to get a, 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 into sort of a religious setting where we just stick with one another and don't talk to others and just sort of hunker down and, and hope that all the bad things out there will just go away. But that's not what these guys do. I mean, they engage. They get deeply involved in the very middle of Babylonian life. And they would have taken some heat for this. In fact, uh, you know, there was just a number of them that were brought to Babylon. The rest of the Jews remained back in Jerusalem. And some false prophets from there had written letters to to the exiles in Babylon. And the letters basically said to them, look, don't get too involved. You just hide out in your little ghetto on the shores of the Euphrates River and wait. And God's going to come and rescue you. That wasn't God's plan for them. And so God instructed the true prophet, Jeremiah, to write a letter to the exiles. And he writes this beautiful letter in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. You should read all of it sometime. But I want to read for you this morning the opening verses, the opening words. This is what Jeremiah writes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then he says these words. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, God instructs them and us. And now we're not living in exile here. This is a beautiful place God has brought us to. But he has instructed them and us to seek the welfare of this beautiful pluralistic city that by his grace he has put us in. And that means that we who are followers of Jesus should never have a fortress mentality. We should never shrink back and and, and hunker down and just fear the things going on out there and just wish that it all went away. Not at all. Instead, like Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we should engage it. 
These were smart men, gifted, capable, and talented. And they got actively involved in their city. And they prayed for it. And they sought the welfare of the city that God had brought them to. And we, we should do the same. But now, now that they're, now that they're really involved, now that they have jobs and careers and position and prestige and presumably a family and a mortgage and a minivan, I mean, now that they have all these things, now the society is going to put real significant pressure on them to take on the values of Babylon and to put away their faith in God. Let's pick up the story here. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. This is what the Bible says. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, Lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, you see what's going on here? Nebuchadnezzar has his nation with all these different peoples from all these different backgrounds, with all these different beliefs, and it makes him nervous. And above all, he wants them to proclaim their allegiance first and foremost to the values of Babylon. And that's what this image represents. You know, often we think that this is an image of King Nebuchadnezzar, but nowhere does the text say that. Instead, it tells us that it was, the base of it was about nine feet square. So, you know, about this big square on the bottom and 90 feet high. So that's clearly not in the shape of a, of a man. Instead, it represented the values of the many gods of Babylon. And everyone who was anyone was expected to come out in public and bow down to it. Now, notice what they weren't expected to do. They weren't expected to deny their own faith. You see, the the, the message was that they were supposed to privatize their own faith. The message in a pluralistic society is you can believe whatever you want privately. But in the public realm, in the public parts of your life, in your workplace, in your school, in your community, wherever it is that you interact with everyone else, there you must believe and live like everyone else. So, if you want to believe in a God who sent his son to die for your sins, if praying is good for your soul, if you want to hold that there is a God who is sovereign over all of creation and has a purpose and a plan for your life, great, good for you. Just keep that private. But when it it comes to your your public life, 
your work and your study and where you live and what you do. Don't let all that stuff spill into your, your, the world that the rest of us live in. Instead, when you're in the public realm, you must bow to the values of the city. Now, let me give you some examples of what that's like. I mean, you're a guy and after work one day you're hanging out with the other guys or maybe it's after school one day and those guys get bragging about their sexual exploits on the weekend. And when the conversation comes around you, you might not be sleeping around. Hopefully, as a follower of Jesus, you're not sleeping around. But, 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 but the pressure comes to give the impression that you are. Because that's what everyone in our culture holds as a high value. And instead of simply saying, look, I don't really do that. I'm instead going to save myself until marriage. Instead, if you give in and give that impression, you are bowing to the image. And you are privatizing your faith to your own private world. Or if you're studying at the university and there is intense competition for a scholarship or for a research position. And all those that you are competing against, they're, they're cutting corners and they're fudging on their research and, and they're spreading misinformation about what you do. You know, if you do the same so that you can compete with them, then you're bowing to the image. You're privatizing your faith and putting the values of the culture ahead of your trust in God. There is, in our culture, profound pressure to privatize your faith and to bow to the image It happened in Nebuchadnezzar's day and it happens in our day. But you can stand up to it. Look at what happens for uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verses 8 to 15. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods, Or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them. Is it true O Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now. If you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow to the image. And the result is they experience very real pressure in their lives. I mean, these, these guys, they grew up in Sunday school. They know the Sunday school answer. But this isn't Sunday school anymore. This is real life. And the decisions that they make and the answers that they give are going to have very real consequences for what's going to happen next. So look at how they respond. Verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So, here's how they respond. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to have a lot of conversation here. We've already thought about this. We've considered the consequences. We know the cost. And we simply will not bow to the image. You see, these men had made up their mind in advance. They'd thought about it already. And don't think this would have come easy for them. I mean, imagine, uh, imagine these men had family and careers and, and future opportunities. It would have been tough. Think about them telling their family and their friends, hey, everyone, come together. Wife, children, friends, I need to tell you, when the call comes to bow to the image, I will not be bowing. You can imagine the response, Shadrach, wait, wait. I mean, look, look, think about this. That's just a bogus image. I mean, we know there's nothing really to that. It's just so that the king feels good about himself. Please, why don't you just bow outwardly and inwardly in your heart? We know that you don't mean it. Plus, look at your position. I mean, you're in a, in a, a very important position. And if you throw that away, if you lose your career over this or, or lose your life over this, who will be there to be salt and light in the government? And think about your wife and your children. Look, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, please. Just quietly bow. We know you don't mean it and get on with your life. These men would have known not only an external pressure, but an internal pressure to bow. And they would have thought about that and prayed about it and read the scriptures. And then they would have decided in advance, when the call comes to bow, we simply will not bow. You see, they decided before the heat of the moment so that when the heat of the, and the pressure of that moment came, that they wouldn't waffle. At that moment, they wouldn't have to stop and think about it all and say, oh boy, I hadn't considered this. I hadn't thought about that. No. Instead, they could simply stand. And this is the first lesson for us. If we're going to live our faith for God in the public realm, in the midst of a pluralistic society, then we need to de- decide in advance where we stand. Because, of course, there could be a great deal of pressure in the moment. Everyone's watching, aren't they? And the king is angry or the boss is upset or the boyfriend is putting pressure on you or the, or the professor is putting pressure on you or whoever else is in authority and they want you to bow to the image, to go along with the values of the culture. And at that moment, you need to have already decided, no matter what, this is where I stand. No matter what happens, good or bad, come what may, I will not bow to the image because I know what I believe and I will not dishonor my God. That's what these guys did. And it gave them great strength in that pressure-filled moment. But not only that, there was another thing that gave them great strength in that difficult moment. And that's this, they stood together. They had one another's backs. They would either live together or they would die together because they had real relationships, real friendships. They had real history, didn't they? 
I mean, at the University of Babylon, when, when the pressure came, they hung together, didn't they? And later, when the king went out of his mind and demanded that the wise men remember his dream and threatened to kill them all, they spent time together on their knees, praying and trusting and seeing God act on their behalf. And no doubt now they would have already done that in this regard. That statue didn't appear out of nowhere in a day. It was slowly built. They were in the government. They would have heard rumors of what was going on. And they would have met and talked about it and thought about it and prayed about it and read the scriptures together and strengthened one another for the coming battle that was in their life. And then when it came, they stood together in the midst of the heat of the moment. If you and I are going to successfully live our lives for Christ in the midst of a pluralistic culture, we need to have a band of friends who is going to stand with us. We're going to need to find a few others who walk together with us and strengthen us and stand with us, especially when the fire comes. And it will come. Who is that in your life? Who's got your back? You know, when the pressure comes, when everyone around you is bowing to the the, the values of this culture and, and the music is so beautiful and the image is so shiny and so powerful and you just want to, you just want to join them because it would be so easy. You're so tempted. Who do you go to to help me? I'm so tempted. Help me do what is right. Who in your life will listen to you and pray for you, come alongside you? We all need people like that in our lives. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had each other. They already had significant biblically-based relationships that they had built long over time. So when the pressure came, they could stand. And this is the second lesson for us here. If we're going to live for God in the public realm in a pluralistic society, then we too must find others who are willing to stand together with us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. First of all, they decided in advance, this is where I stand. Secondly, they stood together. But thirdly, they made one more vital decision. And we can see this very clearly again in verses 17 and 18. Here they are, they're talking again to Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, look, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These guys say to the king, look, we know that God can save us and we trust that he will. But... But if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him. You see, these guys didn't have any any agendas when it came to God. They simply trusted him to do whatever he saw fit in their life. And if that was to save them, fantastic. And if that was to allow them to burn to death in a fiery furnace, so be it. He was God. God. See, too often people come to God with a secret agenda. Now, they would never say this out loud. They don't always think it through carefully. But the fact of the matter is they say in their heart, God, I give my life to you. I follow you. I obey you. But I expect that when the pressure comes that you're going to protect me from that pressure. It'll just kind of bounce off and my life will just be easy. And the fact of the matter is they have an agenda when it comes to God. 
But not these guys. These guys. They, they, they had plenty of faith that God was going to care for them. So if they died uh, in that fire, it was not because they didn't have the kind of faith that God could save them. Nor would they have considered it a sign of God's weakness if he had allowed them to burn in the fire. They knew full well how, who God was and that he could rescue them if he wanted to. No, instead, if they died, they would have simply viewed it as God's will. And this is the third point that we need to learn from this passage, and that's this. If, if, if we're going to live successfully in this pluralistic society for God, then we need to have trust in God without an agenda. You have to trust that if you stand for what is right, if you live for God in the public realm of your life, that he can and he will rescue you. But if he doesn't, if you stand for God and you end up losing your job, if you stand for what God calls you to and your boyfriend or your girlfriend leaves you, if you stand for what God wants you to do and as a result you don't get a spot on the team or you're pushed out of that inner circle and no longer are in the middle of all those decisions that are made in your workplace, if that happens to you, you have to trust that that's God's will and that he knows better than you ever will and that that's his will for your life. And you know, those who have that kind of trust, they can stand and no one and nothing can move them. It's the kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had in God. And you know, when King Nebuchadnezzar runs into this, he cannot believe it. He has always found that everyone has some kind of pressure point that he can ultimately cause them to bow to the values of his, of his kingdom. And now he meets well-educated, sharp, capable men in his own government who will not bow. And it drives him crazy with anger. In fact, he's so angry, it says here now that he, he orders the furnace be heated seven times hotter than it's ever been before. And he, he has these men bound and his strongest soldiers take them up to the furnace and on the way they die from the heat. But then I want you to read how the Bible records what happens next. Verse 23. And then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into a burning, fiery furnace. Nice. Nice. Their reward for being faithful to God. Their reward for being deeply committed to standing for what he called them to in the midst of a pluralistic society is that they got thrown into a fiery furnace. Beautiful. Grant. Here's the point. If we are going to live for God in the public life, in a pluralistic society, and not just privatize our faith so it has very little impact on how we live, then we too are going to face opposition. If you live that way, you can expect that somewhere along the line, you're going to get a bloody nose. You're going to, you're going to run into trouble because in our culture, that kind of living is not particularly appreciated. Somewhere you'll get thrown into the fire and it's going to get hot. But when that happens for you, there are two things that I can promise will happen for you. And here's the first. Jesus will be right there with you. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound 
walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar gets up, he looks into this fire, and he says, I could have sworn we had three guys thrown in. But, but I'm looking in there, and I see four walking around, and the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, the word that he uses there is the Aramaic word for Elohim, the Hebrew word for God. Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace and right there in the midst of it is the Son of God. It's what theologians call a theophany. You see, there are in a number of places in the Old Testament, uh, places that describe how the angel of the Lord came. And in those times when he came, he didn't come as a messenger delivering a message, but rather he spoke as God himself. Because in fact, this is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. So in this story, Jesus himself is with those men in the midst of the fire. And he will do the same for you. You know, when you find yourself there under pressure, feeling the heat because you won't bow to the image, you can be confident that Jesus will be right there with you in the fire. And no matter how hot it is, you will be able to endure because he's endured even more. He'll help you. I mean, he endured more, didn't he? he? He hung on the cross for hours with the weight of all of the sin of the world. And the wrath of God poured out on him and his own father turning his face away so that we could be right with him. So that we could be free of our sins. Jesus knows about heat and pressure and opposition and suffering. And he promises to be right there in the midst of all of it with us. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 43. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When you go through the fire, and if you live for Jesus in a pluralistic society, at some point you will. I promise you that Jesus will be right there with you and he will give you the strength not only to stand, but to stand strong. John Lennox, uh, an excellent Christian author and thinker, uh, tells of a time shortly after the Berlin Wall fell when he went uh, went to Russia. And there he had the opportunity to speak to a number of people who had spent time in the gulag, the Soviet prison system for their faith. He said the first man that he spoke to spent years in a Siberian labor camp because he had taught children from the Bible. And he began to describe his experiences there. And and John said the things that he saw and the things that he experienced are things that no human should ever have to see or ever have to experience. And as that man was telling his story, John began to wonder in his own heart, "I, I don't know if I will have the strength, if I would have the strength to do But this man did. I don't think I'm strong enough. And it was as if this man was reading his his thoughts. And he he said to him, you wouldn't have the faith to survive something like that, would you? And John was kind of caught off guard and a little embarrassed and kind of choked. He said, you know, I, I don't know if I would. And the man grinned at him. He said, nor did I, nor would I. He said, I was a man who fainted at the sight of my own blood, much less the blood of others. But he said, what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not help us to face our theoretical situations, 
but our real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how I could cope in the gulag. But once I was there, I found that God met me there. Exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for opposition and persecution. You see, you don't have to worry if you're going to be able to stand in that moment. Because Jesus will be right there. And he will give you the strength to stand. And so here's the first thing I can promise you. If you go through the fire, Jesus Christ, God himself, will be with you in the midst of the fire. But then here's the second thing that I can promise you. If you walk with God in the midst of the fire, God will receive the glory as you're faithful to him. Again, we see this in this story. The king sees this Guys walking around in there. He calls them out. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out. They stand there. They're none touched. I mean, they don't even smell like smoke. And the whole leaders of the nations are looking. And then look at what he says in verses 28 and 29. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command. And yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore I make a decree any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fire. He sees three men standing together with one another and walking with Jesus. And they're at peace in the midst of the fire. And he can't believe his eyes. And he calls them out. And before the watching nations, he cannot deny the work of Christ in their lives. Walking through the fire, facing troubles and tribulations is simply part of the, the Christian life. But when we walk faithfully in that, we bring glory to God. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Listen, if you remain faithful to God in the midst of that fire. Your life and how you live. People will look and say, I don't know if I believe what they believe. I don't know if they agree with what they believe. But surely what they've got gives them strength. And there must be something to this God that they follow. And God receives the glory. Do you know, do you know that you are in this city for a reason? It's not an accident that you end up living here. Whether you were born here or whether God brought you here, his goal for you, his goal for us is that we, we engage the city. His goal was never that we just hunker down in a in little Christian circles and just hang out, wait until the, all the bad things in the society are gone. Instead, we are to engage it and to thrive in it. And we're to live our faith not only in the private parts of our world, but in the very public parts of our lives. And when we do that, when we decide, I will stand for Jesus. I will put my trust in him with no agenda and allow him to work in and through my life, even if I face opposition. If we do that, then God receives the glory. Then his name is lifted high in this beautiful city that he has called us to. And then, and then others are drawn to this God who has given us life and hope and peace and joy through his son, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for closing prayer?
Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that your word is always true. And Father, we thank you that it is as relevant for us today as it was thousands of years ago. And God, we thank you that you have called us to live in this place. What a beautiful place. What what an amazing place. What a rich and diverse place. God, we thank you for our city. And Father, we pray for the welfare of our city. We pray for the the peace of our city. God, we pray you pour your blessing upon, upon our city and upon our nation. But God, we pray that you would also help us to stand and live for you in this city, in all the areas of our life for you. Father, with a humility, but with a a confidence that comes from knowing who you are and what you're capable of and what you're doing in our lives and the lives of the people around us. And so, Father, today I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that together we would faithfully walk before you in every area of our life. Father, wherever we find ourselves, and even when that means opposition, Father, may we trust you so that your name would be lifted high, knowing that it's in the strength and the power of Jesus Christ that we're able to do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Lord bless you.